0: All right, Psalm 21, to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips, Selah. For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you, and you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him, for you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. Your hand will find all your enemies, your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men, for they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. Okay, we're in Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 7 today. This is entitled, The Sabbath of the Land. Just a few verses, but it's very interesting stuff. Then the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of its own accord of your harvest, you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. Then the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you, for your male and female servants, for your hired man and the stranger who dwells with you, for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land. All its produce shall be for food. The verses that we're going to look at today are verses which require trust in the people of the land. They're being asked, even before entering into Canaan, to set aside one out of every seven years and not plant or reap anything at all. It sounds impossible to even consider. It would be like the Lord telling any one of us that we were going to work for six days and take off the seventh day every single week, and then we're expected to take off the entire seventh year as well. In essence, that comes out to almost two-sevenths of one's productive life not being dedicated to any work at all. Throw in the three mandatory pilgrim feasts, and more productive time is removed from the ability to earn. This would require real trust. Trust. It fits well with something that a friend emailed me a while ago in which he said I could use to open a sermon. Here's what he said. A long time ago, no, not in a galaxy far, far away, I decided to go for a walk to the store and thought I'd take my sweet little niece along. 7-Eleven was only about a quarter mile away, and so it's not too far for a three-year-old. She put her little hand in mine, and off we went. We began walking and got about a house or two from home and she points to the neighbor's house saying, is that the store? I say, no, no, honey. The store's way over that way, pointing to where the store was. We got a few more houses along our way and again she points to the house we're passing by and says, is that the store? Again, I tell her that the store's way over there, pointing in the direction of the store. Instantly, this very clear thought comes into my mind. It doesn't matter at all that she doesn't know where the store is i do i know where the store is and due to love for her and a sense of responsibility i'm going to make sure that she gets there also what occurred to me was that my grip on her hand is so much stronger and more committed to getting us there that i could have dragged her there if need be What came to me next was that God knows where I am, and his love for me is going to get me where he wants me. He knows where the store is. I felt so terribly lost in life and couldn't understand why. With my best efforts, I kept ending up with ashes, frequently a whole lot. I have simply prayed, God, please get me to the store. It wasn't like some sort of magic wand that suddenly made the sun come up, but it was a bit of a comfort in the storm. I hope this will bring hope and comfort to someone feeling as lost as I have. Lastly, lastly, always remember that you can get a real good root beer slurpee at 7-Eleven for about a buck. Our text first comes from Isaiah 51, verse 4. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust Israel was being asked to trust the Lord. As you will see, they failed at this, but had they simply trusted, all would have gone well with them. The Lord doesn't make idle promises, nor does he impose impossible standards. He is ever faithful, and he will do right to those who trust him as they should. But more than just a set of odd laws, which hardly seem relevant to anything that we would think concerns us today... The laws of Leviticus 25 point to the person and work of Jesus and to his future kingdom. Because they do, we can look at these verses and see that the purpose of Israel was more than just following the rules of a now obsolete law. They were being used to show us that even better things lay ahead. Like the feasts of the Lord, and like so many other things which have been detailed thus far in the Bible, there is a greater meaning in the words and verses which we (laughs) so quickly skim right over rather as always wonderful things are to be found in his superior word and so let's turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised I have only one thought for you today it's the Sabbath of the seventh year verse 1 and the Lord spoke to Moses the words and the Lord spoke to Moses indicate a new train of thought will now be introduced It is a separate set of instructions entirely than that which has been previously presented. That whole section included the care of the menorah, and of the bread, of the presence, and it was followed up with the incident of blasphemy, resulting in stoning to death the one who cursed. Now, the Lord begins directions of the Sabbath of the seventh year, the year of Jubilee, the redemption of property, and so on. Some scholars have commented on the error of placing this chapter here instead of placing it after the feasts of the Lord. This is because, they say, the Sabbath of the seventh year and the year of Jubilee are closely connected with the laws concerning the feast days. But that's an illogical argument when considering how many things in the law correspond to other passages within the law and which are not placed side by side. To attempt to align the law in this manner would completely destroy the harmonious flow which is revealed in the slow and methodical trip which we are making through it. We saw how well-placed chapter 24 actually was when we went through it. Leviticus 25 verse 1 now begins what is known as a parashah or a reading of the law. In the synagogue of the Jews, the parasha is a weekly portion of scripture reading, which is read and then commented on. Each parasha has a corresponding passage from the prophets, which is known as a haftarah. So they do this every year. They start the year and they read through the law. They read a parasha and then they go to a haftarah in the prophets. This parasha's corresponding passage is from Jeremiah 32, verses 6 through 37. It is a passage which deals with the redemption of property, something which is described in this chapter of Leviticus. Verse 1 continues on Mount Sinai saying, the Hebrew here is Behar Sinai, literally in Mount Sinai, but meaning in the region of Sinai. The tabernacle has already been raised and is from the most holy place, not from the top of Mount Sinai, that the Lord speaks to Moses. This was explained in Leviticus 1 verse 1 with the words, Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Moses would receive instruction from the mouth of the Lord who dwelt between the cherubim. Mount Sinai is the same place as Mount Horeb, but the name Sinai is used because it is given in anticipation of the cross of Christ. Sinai means bush of the thorn. The name of the location is given in connection with the redemptive workings of God in Christ, which looks forward to the cross. As the things which will now be relayed to the people look forward to his sacrifice, the name Sinai is specifically given. Christ is the anticipation of everything that we will see in the laws to follow. Verse 2, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The instructions are not given only to Aaron, which would indicate words of priestly law. Nor are they given to the congregation in general, as if they were to be conveyed to the elders only, who would act upon them on behalf of the people. Instead, as is often seen, Moses is to speak to Bnei Yisrael, or the children of Israel. They are words of law, and they are words intended for all of the people to know and to carry with them. In America, the laws for the transfer of property are maintained by the government, but they are generally known to all of the people. If the details need to be looked into, they are ready, available, and awaiting anyone who desires to view them. This is the idea of saying, speak to the children of Israel. Further, as they are under the law of Moses, the term children is appropriate. With the coming of Christ, the law is fulfilled and it is annulled. Those in Christ are not termed children, but sons. We have the full rights and inheritances that Israel did not possess. It is for this reason that the instructions of this chapter are so carefully recorded. Children need direction in the matters contained here. Sons, because of the reception of their inheritance, have no such need for these earthly instructions, which only anticipated Christ's completion of what they picture. This begins to be seen with the next words. Verse 2 continues When you come into the land which I give you. The words here do not yet apply to the people. It is the fourth and the last instance in the book of Leviticus where a law anticipates entry into the land. It will come into effect only at that time. However, they are words of guarantee. The Lord does not make this a conditional statement like, if I bring you into the land which I am thinking about giving you. Instead, the Lord will bring them in and he has given it to them. And yet, of the adults who are alive at this time, only two of them will actually come into the land. Does anybody know their names? Caleb and Joshua. Very good. All of the others are going to die in the wilderness. The actual intent is that they will continue to receive the law until the Lord has finished speaking. And then they will be immediately journeyed towards the land. Their arrival should be marked in weeks, not in years. However, such will not be the case. Therefore, the words, the land which I give to you speak of the nation of Israel, not merely the people whose ears happen to hear the promise. The land has been granted to Israel as a people unconditionally, but actually dwelling in it is conditional. Verse 2 continues, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord, and shall Sabbath the land, Sabbath to Yehovah. The Sabbath, or rest, every seven years is for the land, just as the weekly Sabbath is for the people. The weekly Sabbath reminded Israel that they were the Lord's people and were to rest in honor of him, trusting in his provision from the week's productivity. The seventh year Sabbath of the land was to remind the people that the Lord is the owner of the land, and they were to trust in his provision from the land. This Sabbath rest of the land was first mentioned to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 23 with these words, Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. There are no special sacrifices or convocations designated for these Sabbath years, But it could actually be considered that the entire year is a sacrifice. To not cultivate the land for an entire year would be an incredible leap of faith in the provision of God. The entire system to be announced is theocratic in nature then. God is God and the people were to trust him as their sovereign. And because of this, he is directed each seventh year as a Sabbath to the Lord as far as the entry into the land, it is recorded in Joshua that the nation engaged in war for seven years before they were at peace. Therefore, this law was probably not included in those seven years. Further, it was another seven years before the land was wholly divided among the tribes. It is believed that those seven years were also excluded. Therefore, If Jewish tradition is right, it was not until the 21st year after their arrival that this law would have been fully enacted, if it was ever actually enacted. One of the reasons for the exile of the people is that they failed to honor the Sabbaths, including this Sabbath of the land. Jeremiah 25 verse 11 and 12 said that the people would be exiled for 70 years to Babylon. This is then repeated in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, and then Daniel refers to it in Daniel chapter 9. This reason for these 70 years of exile, though, is explicitly stated in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Here's what it says. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed Her Sabbaths as long as she lay desolate she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years 70 years of Sabbaths comprises 490 years now whether this is to be taken as literally they missed that many Sabbath years or whether it is cumulative for any and all that were missed the one thing we do know is that no Sabbath year observance is actually recorded anywhere in the Old Testament except in Nehemiah 10 verse 31 that's a time after the return from Babylon, and that verse only promises that the Sabbath year would be observed henceforward. Nothing in scripture after that is recorded as to whether it was actually observed or not. However, there are some extra-biblical references to this being conducted after the time of the return of the people from Babylon. Verse 3, six years you shall sow your field. There was to be planting of crops for six years. The word sow here is Zarah. Literally, it is the sowing of seed. It is used when speaking of conceiving children as well. And so the sowing is in anticipation of a crop. A crop is in anticipation of a harvest. And a harvest is in anticipation of one's daily bread. This cycle of sowing in order to have grain for bread was to be practiced for six years. Verse 3 continues, And six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. Here is a new word, zamar or prune. It's going to be seen just twice in verses 3, and then 4, and then only one more time in the Bible in Isaiah 5, verse 6. It is identical in form to the word zamar, which is used many times in Scripture, but especially in the Psalms to indicate singing praises. The words probably meet in the thought of how it is used in Psalm 33, where it says this, Praise the Lord with the harp, make melody, zamar, to him with an instrument of ten strings. There, the words make melody are translated from that word zamar the idea then is as one plays striking the instrument with his hands so the hand also strikes at the vine with a sort of clipping motion we saw that in the video before we started today it can be assumed then that when the Psalms speak of singing elsewhere and singing praises to the Lord it is normally inclusive of the playing of instruments In the words of this verse there is the prescription that work is to be done it says you shall sow your field you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit this is to be accomplished for six years it is a positive mandate to actively work the land sowing and reaping as it produces the word fruit here is intended to include anything which the land produces whether it is grains fruits or vegetables the people were to work towards their rest It is like the week leading to the Sabbath. It's a picture of man working 6,000 years towards his rest in the millennial reign of Christ. It was to be a time of productivity and diligence while waiting for a time of change in what was to be done. The land was given to them, and it was to be used as they pleased and with the intent of producing wealth and prosperity. Verse 4, But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. This is the sixth and last time in the entire Bible that the term Shabbat, Shabbaton, or Sabbath of solemn rest is used. Four times it speaks of the weekly Sabbath, once for the Day of Atonement, and now here concerning the seventh year of Sabbath rest. The land was to be left completely at rest every seventh year, just as the people were to be completely at rest every seventh day. According to Exodus 23, verse 11, the reason given says, But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. No work of any kind was to be conducted in an agricultural sense for the entire year. Instead it was, verse 4 continues, a Sabbath to the Lord. Shabbat le Yehovah, Sabbath to Yehovah. Although it goes unstated exactly here, when this year of Sabbath rest commenced, it would have been during the seventh month around the same time as the year of Jubilee would commence each 50th year. That will be seen in verse nine. Some traditions say that the Sabbath year began on the first day of the month. Remembering that there are two calendars, you have a creation and a redemption calendar, this would mean that it is aligned with the first day of the first month of the civil or creation calendar. No matter what, The entire year was dedicated as a Sabbath to Jehovah. At the ending of this special year, the law, the law itself, was to be read to all of the people during the Feast of Tabernacles. This is noted in the book of Deuteronomy where it says And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, You shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. What we are seeing here is a marvelous reflection of the history of man's time on earth as he works towards the millennium. Each of the redeemed of the Lord has his own responsibility of sharing Christ. That means sowing and reaping. The care of the person and the field they minister in will reap according to their efforts. But in the millennium, meaning the last thousand year period where Christ reigns, there will be no need to labor in this fashion as in times past. Rather, like the people of Israel, ceasing their labors, the world will rest in the Lord and what he provides for the people throughout the dispensation. And instead of hearing the words of the law, the people will have the law issue forth to them directly from the throne of Christ from Jerusalem. Isaiah describes this for us. It says in Isaiah chapter two, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths." Here it is. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn to war anymore. In type, this Sabbath to the Lord is an anticipatory look ahead to the rest which is coming after the first 6,000 years of man's history on earth. In the final thousand years, often called the millennium, there will be a different order of things. Again, Isaiah prophesies concerning this millennial reign of Christ he says there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall go out of his roots the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord His delight is in the fear of the Lord and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb the leopard shall lie down with the young goat the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them the cow and the bear shall graze their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox the nursing child shall play by the cobras hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Hasn't happened yet, but is coming soon to a millennium near you. (laughs) This millennial reign of Christ is also mentioned six times in the book of Revelation. People say it's allegory, it's spiritualized, That's not really coming. The Lord doesn't mention something six times unless he means it's really coming. There will be a time when Satan is bound and the people of God will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Verse four continues, you shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard the words here are explained already include all cultivation of any kind including fruit trees vineyards crops and etc no such work was to be done during this entire seventh year period and in the Millennium there will be rest on earth as Christ provides all that is spiritually necessary for his people verse 5 what grows of its own accord of your harvest you shall not reap a new word Saffa is found here it will be seen just five times It comes from the word safach, which gives the sense of attachment or cleaving to. Here it signifies that which fell out by itself and then roots and grows of itself. Any such plant was not to be reaped by the owner of the land. In essence, the very soil of the earth was not really considered his own property, but it is the Lord's, and its produce was left for any and all to benefit from. The same word is used in the memorable passage from the Lord, where the Lord speaks to Hezekiah. Jerusalem was hemmed in by Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and in order to reassure Hezekiah that he would be delivered, a portion of the Lord's word said the following, This shall be assigned to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself. That word there, Safiach. And the second year, what springs from the same? And in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and those who escape from Mount Zion. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The idea there is one of Hezekiah trusting the Lord's word and accepting that his provision would be sufficient for the people. It is the same idea which is found right here in the book of Leviticus. The people were expected to trust the Lord and to not violate the precepts being laid down now. Verse 5 continues, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, in literally it says, and the grapes of your Nazarite, and thus the grapes of your consecration. It is the same word used to describe the Nazarite which is found in Numbers chapter 6 just as the Nazarite was set apart or consecrated to God with the sign of his consecration being hair which was uncut so the vines were consecrated to the Lord and remained uncut throughout the seventh year instead of being cut all of the productive power of the hair or the vine was consecrated solely to the Lord verse 5 continues for it is a year of rest for the land rest means cessation from labor this is the intent of the passage The land was to be at rest, and no works were to be employed to bring about the produce of the land. Rather, the land would yield naturally apart from man's efforts. Everything about this seventh year is emblematic of the coming millennial reign of Christ. The Safayach, or grain which falls and grows of its own accord, is the natural growth of humanity who are spiritually nourished by the Lord, directly and without the need of man's intervention. The Nazarite or consecrated vine is one which has been left to produce on its own. It is set apart to God and what it bears is solely the produce of the Lord. Again, man's efforts are excluded, so it will be in the millennium. It is the Lord who alone will plant, water, and give the increase in that wondrous age to come. Verse 6, and the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you. What this means is that whatever is produced of itself during the seventh Sabbath year was to be food for all of the people. This seems contradictory to verse five, which said, what grows of its own accord of your harvest, you shall not reap. However, what that was saying is that no owner was to go out and actively harvest his land, reaping as they would on any regular year, as if the land was especially his own. Instead, Anyone who is owner or stranger could use the land without consideration of ownership. All had rights to the produce which grew of itself, rich or poor, native or stranger. The owner had done nothing to cause the produce to grow, and therefore the (laughs) owner did not have the sole right to reap it as a harvest. And what is one of several anomalies found in the grammar of this chapter not all of which I'm going to highlight. The verses have been consistently speaking in the second person singular. Suddenly, and for just one word, it switches to the second person plural. That now immediately changes back to the second person singular. Verse 6 continues, For you, your male and female servants, your hired man and the stranger who dwells with you. Taken with the previous clause, they together would read, And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you all plural for you singular your singular hired man and your stranger singular who dwells with you singular this could be dismissed as simply going from the general to the specific in other words first it's speaking of the general populace and then the words are directed to the individual who is in a specific relation to what is being spoken of but if we go back up to verse 2 it speaks of the people in the plural from verse three until now, it is in the singular. And then it suddenly goes back to the plural for one word, and then back to the singular. This isn't unique in the chapter, and there are several such anomalies. In the next verse, it will say, Be'artsecha, in your singular land. But in verse nine, it will say, Be'chal artsechem, in all your plural land. As I said, I'm not going to go through every such instance. But rather than dismiss this, I would personally find that it is referring to a prophetic look to the Lord's millennial reign and his authority, rights, and responsibilities during that time. If you look at the words in this light, it does appear to show that distinction, as one would think of what would occur during the millennium. Until the work of Christ was, or even now is, understood, the grammatical changes require a whole lot of guesswork as to why they are made. But in understanding the dispensational model and what Christ will mean to the world of the future, the changes seem to take on their proper sense. Now, whether this is correct or not, the words are not well followed through with most translations. And because of this, unless you study the Hebrew, there is no way to see that this is occurring, and a lot is missed that would otherwise excite the mind which longs for the secrets of this marvelous, marvelous gift given to us by God. Verse 7 finishes our verses today for your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. The livestock are animals that are generally those tamed by man and which are kept by man. The beasts are more specifically referring to the wild animals of the land. Not only was the produce to be the property of any person, it was also to be left for any animal. No person or beast was to be restricted from gathering or foraging from the Sabbath produce. What the Lord provided was to be for all alike. That was already seen in the prophecy by Isaiah, where he mentioned the wild and tame beasts dwelling together and eating together. It will be a time of peace on the earth where there will be abundance and none will be afraid of what was once a source of fear. Verse 7 ends our verses for today. But before we close, one point that should be considered is that the things that we've been looking at, and the words used to detail this special Sabbath year have been given to show us hints of what lie ahead in Christ's future reign on earth. However, Israel was actually asked to live this out year by year. As I said earlier, there is no record in Scripture that this was done even one time. But it appears to be implicitly stated in Joshua 24. There we read this, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. There is no rebuke of Joshua for not meeting the law's requirements, and so it is likely that he was faithful to ensure the Sabbath years were observed. At other times, similar words to this are stated, and so it is likely that Even if temporarily, Israel would have had this special Sabbath year and observed it. But due to the words given as the reason for Israel's exile, it is certain that adherence to this would have been the exception rather than the rule. Maybe the people simply just distrusted the word of the Lord and couldn't imagine that things would be as he said. Maybe at times they simply forgot or neglected the word of the Lord. But for whatever reason, they failed to obey this marvelous precept, which he had given to them. And the funny thing is that on any year that they did obey, the Lord certainly would have kept his end of the bargain. They would have had plenty as promised, and they could have done other things at the same time. There are no restrictions on other activities. If they wanted to take up basket weaving, they could have done so. If they wanted to learn to build houses They could have done so in the Sabbath year. There could have been an explosion of technology as the people were freed from the labors of the field and given the chance to invent, develop, and produce. What I'm saying is that the Lord is the one who created us and it is he who knows what is best for us in taking one thing away. He will always provide something else. There will never be a gap when we trust in his provision. Rather, there will be something even better. It may not seem so at first, but through faithful obedience, each step will show us this, even to our very final step. He will someday even take away our life itself, but in that, He will provide a life which is truly life. There are no lacks in God except the lacks which we make when we fail to trust Him. Faith in the Lord means faith in His Word, the two cannot be separated. We cannot say, I have faith in Jesus, and then logically say, I do not agree with that part of the Bible. That happened on Facebook, once again, for the 15th billionth time this week when I posted something about abortion. Okay, I brought up the issue. And I said how unpleased God was about the issue, and I made a little post about it. And some person I've known for years who attends a Methodist church, she was here in Sarasota and then moved up to somewhere in North Carolina or somewhere, she came back and she said, you shouldn't be so hard on people for aborting babies. What would Jesus do? And I said, (laughs) yeah, exactly. I said, he would go to his word. He would go to Exodus 21 where it says, if a man strikes a woman with a child in the womb and the child dies, it is life for life. That's what he would do. And then I went on to tell her that the Lord will not be mocked. You cannot separate his word from him. He is the expression of what he says, and what he says is the expression of who he is. If we refuse to acknowledge his word, we have a complete disconnect from who he is. That is why the word of the Lord is so very important. And that is why in order to know that we are saved, we absolutely must accept the word of the Lord and what it says concerning salvation. It's not difficult, but it is very precise, and it is time for that message to be brought to your ears. Listen now, and we'll be done in just a second. I'm gonna first take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You wanna know how to be saved? You wanna know how to be right with God? There's no other way than what I'm gonna read you right now. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand by which you also are saved. If you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. God asks you to believe that. And that he was buried. God asks you to believe that as well. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He asks you to believe those three things, that he died for your sins, that he was placed into the grave and that on the third day he rose again, all right? And how do you acquire that? How do you appropriate that? I'm going to take you to the book of Romans chapter 10 and I'm going to read you verse nine, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation Oh, God, I understand that I'm a sinner and that I have offended you and that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to take care of that problem. That is what you were expected to do, to believe that he did that for you. People say, how can a loving God allow what happened last week? God didn't (laughs) allow that to happen at all. He would choose that that not happen, that people be mowed down in a high school. But he allows us free will to make our choices, including giving kids drugs, which every one of these mass shootings has been involved, every one of them, somebody that is being put on these prescription medicines, including the one that happened this last week. Because the parents don't want to follow the biblical model and spank their children when they do wrong, and to raise them properly, and they go off on a tangent, and they go and they shoot a bunch of people, and everybody says, where is God in this? And they blame everything except the problem. The problem is that we ignore the one who created us and who knows what is best for us. This is not a gun problem. This is not a school problem. This is not a government problem. This is a problem of the heart. This is a disconnect between the heart and the mind of people because we do not have God in our lives. And specifically, we do not have Jesus Christ who is God in our lives. So if you want to get right with God, I would suggest that you call on Jesus, ask him to forgive you of your sins, and you'll be saved. And then teach your children about it so they don't go do something like we had happen last week. All right? This is the message that the Bible proclaims. We have a closing verse today from Amos chapter 9. It's the 13th verse. Amos is such a beautiful book. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Next week is Leviticus 25, 8 through 22. Great stuff. I'm sure you'll agree, my favorite one. It's entitled The Year of Jubilee. Part one. Part one. That'll be our 46th (laughs) Leviticus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay, poem, and we're done. The Sabbath of the land. Then the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, There on Sinai these words he was then relaying. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, Yes, according to this word, when you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit, You can do this while whistling out a tune. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. You shall do according to this word. What grows of its own accord of your harvest, you shall not reap. Please understand, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine, for it is a year of rest for the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you. For you, your male and female servants, your hired man, and the stranger who dwells with you too. For your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food so tasty and grand. Oh God, it is so good to come to your word to search it out for what you would of us expect. And so in searching, we find our precious Lord, and in him only grace and mercy can we detect. For those who have trusted in Jesus, we have the surest hope of all magnificent wondrous things he has done for us because upon his precious name we did call how can such love be O god surely it exceeds heaven's highest height and so for sending jesus we joyously applaud because through him all things are new once again all things are right hallelujah and amen. amen heavenly father thank you for this wonderful short set of verses, which shows us that you are in control of all things and you will bless your people according to their obedience to you. And it points to an even greater truth is that we have a rest which lies ahead, a glorious rest, which will last for a thousand years on this earth as the earth rejoices in their Messiah who came once to die for the sins of the people and will come again to judge the world in righteousness What a wonderful story this is. What a marvelous thing that you have shown us in your word. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. How great you are, oh God. It's in Jesus' name we do this. Amen.